This is an Alliance podcast. How do we ingrain amateur soccer into American communities as it is in other established soccer nations? Bill Marth is the author of Building an Amateur Soccer Nation, which covers the evolution of amateur soccer in America and illustrates how the way in which soccer is organised in this country can and should be reformed to grow the game and to foster sustainability and merit-based play. Just a heads up, first few minutes of this, we had a little bit of audio issues, but we sorted it out and I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Folks, welcome back to the Build It podcast. Joining us this week is Bill Marth, General Secretary of the Cosmopolitan Soccer League, General Manager of Hoboken FC 1912, and author of, Bill, what's the full title of your book? It's uh, Building an Amateur Soccer Nation. There you go. And for that reason, that reason alone, he's absolutely the man that we wanted to talk to this week. Um, hi, Bill. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. No worries. Hi, John, as ever. Hey, what's happening? Look at that energy, 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 energy. Oh, Bill, um, before we get started properly, um, I know you want to sort of say a couple of things and then we wanted to talk about your history in soccer. So um, first off, talk, tell us the very, very quick oversight of the book and how it came to be. Okay, just one quick thing is I wanted to make a disclosure for everyone. Um, I am an employee of the Council Pond Soccer League. I'm the general manager. I'm also involved with the Easter Premier Soccer League. I'm the secretary of the Eastern Premier Soccer League and Commissioner of the Metropolitan Conference. The thoughts in my book are my own, um, and I'm speaking as an individual, um, not on behalf of any organization that I'm a member of. So I just want to get that disclosure out there. Um, how did the book come about? Uh, I've been involved, in, I guess, in soccer my whole life. I grew up with Hoboken FC in 1912. Uh, my father was a member of the club. Uh, I had uh, played uh, a little bit with the club. I played as a youth for another club in our in the Castle Pond Junior League Sports Friends. I'd been involved then as the manager, coach, eventually it became the general manager of the club and then got involved through the league, the Castle Pond Soccer League, and always had a passion of how to build uh, amateur soccer. I've also uh, traveled a fair amount. Uh, I have a lot of relatives in Germany. I traveled as, as a kid and also later on as an adult with friends, I travel my soccer club. I've seen a lot of amateur clubs throughout the world. And part of the book is how do we make America into an amateur soccer nation? Uh, we've come a long way in building a professional soccer nation. Our attendance in the MLS is getting close to the other leagues in the world, but we're lacking in the amateur game. And so that's the genesis of the book. How do we build an amateur soccer nation? Sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I remember there was a comedian called Bill Hicks talking way back to like the 1990s about the Iraqi war. He just said that um, people were sort of it's a terrible analogy, but basically the Iraqi army was like the third, big, third or fourth biggest army in the world. He said, yeah, but the top three are great, and then there's a huge big drop off to the fourth. And I feel like um, that's the same with American soccer attendances, right? It's like the ML MLS is doing great, God love it for all it stands for, um, but then the drop off from that to the lower leagues is fairly sizable. There, isn't, there doesn't seem to be a, a grad gradation. If that makes sense, would you agree on that? Yes, uh, I would say in the, in the first chapter of the book, I mentioned, I guess, so for the introduction, how high school football is sometimes is in many places the fabric of the community, um, where even if you never played high school football, even if your son's not on the high school football team, a lot of people in local towns go to high school football matches. I would like to see the amateur soccer club be the fiber of the community where I'm not going to say a um, thousand spectators, but if we can get a couple hundred to an amateur soccer match in every community, that would be great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, our much wanted mantra here is that there should be, you know, as we told you, we're 70 miles away from Chicago. There should be 70 or so teams, at least 70, that we can drive from, get, get to between here and Chicago. It's not that, you know, it's not that remote. It's not that idealistic. Um, 
and you know, the, I come from a background in the UK where non-league soccer, community soccer, very much is the life and soul, and is often held up as the vanguard of you know what should be, what could be, um, whether America will ever get there. Because you know, the, to me, the, ba the baseball is the closest community. Non-league baseball is the closest community thing. I don't understand why basketball hasn't gone down the route, but soccer absolutely can, and sh there's a template for success there. Um, okay, so talk to us a little bit about. Um, before we dig too de deeply into the book itself, um, your background with Hoboken and with the Cosmopolitan Soccer League and with the ESL uh, as well. Just well, things as just say, I, I grew up with Hoboken FC. My, my father came over from Germany and originally Hoboken FC was an, a German-based uh, club. Uh, it's evolved over the years. It started in 1912. It's the oldest uh, continually active amateur soccer club in the country. Um, my, my father came over in the 1950s and he became a member. So I basically grew up with the club and whether it's German clubs, Italian clubs, what have you, when immigrants came over until probably, I don't know, maybe the seventies or eighties when flights became more relative, you know, relatively less expensive. When you were here in America, you were, you were here. Uh, it wasn't like uh, some of the people that we have now in the club who are from Ireland or England, and they go back regularly. Maybe they go back twice a year and see their family three times a year or their family comes here. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, even before that, when you were here, you were here. So every Christmas or every Easter, um, birthdays, we would spend that with other members of Hoboken FC. So your my godfather was a member of Hoboken FC. My brother's godfather was a member of Hoboken FC. So this was your new family. So you became very attached to the club and to the members because a lot of times you didn't have any other outlet uh, when you came over as an immigrant, like my, my dad. So yes, he worked uh, originally at a, at a plating plant, but your outlet was your soccer club and that's where you spent all your free time and your holidays and everything. So I grew up with Hoboken FC um, and I've been a member my whole life. Obviously I went away to college, I went away to, to law school. I wasn't always totally active. I was always a member though. Um, and a lot of family friends were members of Hoboken FC. And then the club had kind of fallen on somewhat hard times. It was going through a transition period, um, really starting in the, in the late 90s, uh, 2000s, when a lot of the older members had either passed away or moved away, became inactive. And ultimately in the later 2000s, um, 2006, people asked me to step up and take more of a managerial role. And at that point, we only had one club and we didn't really have any fields. Uh, we just had one dirt grass field where we played on Sundays. We didn't have any training sessions. And, um, you know, my goal was to rebuild the club. And eventually, I think we did that. We now play in the first division, the Casa Pond Soccer League. We have a reserve team. We have a women's team. We have an over 30 team. We've won two women's state cups. We've won one men's state cups. I went to a final another time. Uh, over 30s won the League Cup a few years back. Uh, we're discussing eventually expanding, getting a youth movement. So we've kind of revitalized the club and we've done four international trips in the last nine years to, to Europe. Um, we're planning to do another one next year, 2022, if things go well, um, hopefully get through COVID. So we kind of revived the whole club into back into a club culture. So I guess that's where initially it started, how I was involved with Hoboken and my, my background. And then through that, my father had also been involved with the Kazopan League of which Hoboken is a founding member. And I started off as a trustee there and then eventually became general secretary of the league, which is mostly a volunteer job. It's a small part-time job where I do work uh, part-time there on payroll doing some scheduling and um, some player approvals and interacting with national uh, soccer officials, state officials on cups and other things. And Where then- the time? What's that? Where do you find the time to do all this? Well, uh, right now, uh, <laughs> a lot of it was volunteer, but um, I, I'm, 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 I, I'm a, by my profession, I'm an attorney, but I'm, I'm only actually practicing part-time. So uh, I do practice law part-time, but I, I do work for the, the Casual Pond Soccer League part-time right. um, as an employee. We have, we're a little low this year because of COVID, but we last year, 1920 season, we had a hundred and nine active teams right now i think we have 83 or 84 um so it is it, 
we also have other people who work at the league. It's not yeah. just me, but it is almost during season. It's a job. It's a <laughs> full time work in the Kazakhstan mm-hmm. League because we have we have we have almost three thousand players who, that are registered in the Kazakhstan Soccer League in a given year. So I'm just, um, I'm it, just it, imagining John's face, John's face on this oh, call. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I just cracked a beer listening to that because that's <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, so. we got we got how many in the Midwest right now, John? Give or take about twenty, right? Uh, yeah, 20, 20 clubs, um, 20 clubs in four states and varying levels of, of history, experience, expertise, willingness, communication, all those kinds of things. So it's a very wide, wide brush here. Rather you than me, Bill. That's all I can say. Well, we, what we did do is we, 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 uh, we worked with another group in Maryland and that's how we created the EPSL which this was its first season, it's in its first season, the 1920 season, I'm sorry, the 2021 season, where the top teams of the Kazopan League, that a lot of them have storied history, like the Penn Cyprians, the Greek Americans, Lansdowne boys, we wanted to play at a higher level and have more of a regional feel. Uh, and, and so that's how we created the EPSL, which is a unique concept in the sense that it's going to it is based on the European model of the Oberliga in Germany or the Tessea in Spain, where we have conferences that are based in a geographical area of 100 to 200 miles where the teams play in their conference, ideally a full schedule of 22 matches, double round robin fall to spring. And then there's Pro-Rel, where the Kazopan Soccer League is a, is a feeder league to the EPSL along with the Garden State League and the Metropolitan Conference and the Maryland Majors in the Mid-Atlantic Conference. Um, and that's something that myself and Mike Fitzgerald, the president of our league, and Bill George, the, the then president of the Maryland Majors, got together to establish. And that league has is similar to the Midwest Premier League in that it has higher standards, higher field standards, a uh, little bit higher costs, um, higher expectation on the clubs. Okay. I, I- that's that's interesting, Bill. And I'm just curious, a little bit off topic, but it's all soccer, so it's off topic. What when you sit down with with other leagues and other officials and say, "Let's build something better here," um, what what's that? What are those conversations like? Is that is that willing participants going into the meeting, or is that a matter of everybody putting their a uh, little bit of personal pride in, and maybe even arrogance to say? You know, hey, my league's better than your league, and and no more. We have to admit, we have to kind of create an environment where clubs can succeed at the level that their communities can support or their ownership can support. Like, what are those kind of conversations like? Well, there, look, there there are obviously some some leagues, some officials who are very entrenched in certain beliefs. I would say the Cosmopolitan Soccer League going back generations has always been a very progressive league. We started off as the German American League in 1923. And at that time in the New York and New Jersey area, most of the leagues were ethnic leagues. There was an Italian American league in New York and New Jersey. There was a, there was a Greek league. There were many, um, a Portuguese league. These leagues are no longer around. And if the Cosmopolitan Soccer League had remained the German American league and did not expand and bring in other clubs, then we would not be around. And, we gradually brought in other clubs starting in the 50s and the 60s and in the 70s merged with another league called the National Soccer League of New York and then it changed its name in 1977 to the Cosmopolitan Soccer League. The, the reality of it is the way things were going could no longer work. The, the world is different now. You have these quote-unquote national high-level leagues and I put it in quotes because I don't necessarily think they are high-level leagues. They just market themselves as that. And this, is, uh, this could maybe not have been done in the 80s or 90s or before that, but now with the internet age and it is e- these other leagues are marketing themselves. And if, if the traditional leagues don't get together and work together and form something higher up, they're going to lose teams. And it's happened in many places in the country. So the Cotsopan Soccer League, the Garden State League, the um, Maryland Majors in Maryland, the Northeast Champions League um, in in the New England all are, are in agreement that we want to work together to build something that is above us, but we're not hurting the individual leagues. And that's the important thing. We're not in competition with the Cosmopolitan League because number one, our conferences are capped. So it's not like 
the Metropolitan Conference one day is going to have 25 teams and different divisions and all of that. We're not going to take all the teams from the Cosopan League. It's going to be capped. And if we expand, that means a team by through promotion from the Cosopan Soccer League, someone's going to get relegated. Second of all, we strongly encourage, and hopefully we can give some financial incentives once we get through COVID and get hopefully some sponsorship that the teams in the EPSL will have reserve teams in one of the affiliated feeder, feeder leagues so that the teams don't, the, the local leagues don't lose uh, membership. So this is a true partnership and we would encourage everyone to join. Um, and a lot of that's mapped out in my book where I'm talking about a tier system where a club can go from level nine on the pyramid to level three pro on the pyramid through merit. All right, but that seems like a nice segue into the book itself. Um, and I'm sure I hate to interrupt John because I'm sure he's got 101 league-based questions. But what is the, can you give, Is the, does it exist, an overview of your plan for reforming amateur soccer? Well, I would say it's much, it, it's much <laughs> easier to do it in certain regions than in other regions. Um, and, and I have to be, I want to make this clear. In, in the book, I have 16 points. Of, of things that I think should be done. These are my opinions. The tier league system is one of them. It is a centerpiece of it, but it's only one of 16. So it's important that we have pro-rel and bring everyone on board because it gives incentives to local clubs and it gives them a chance to dream. And it, the Council Pond Soccer League, we have four divisions. So if you're tier four, if you're in the fourth division, that's effectively tier nine. You get to the first division, that's tier six. Then you can go to the EPSL tier five. Then there's NISA Nation tier four and NISA Pro tier three. Obviously, there are U.S. soccer requirements to be an owner of a team in a professional league. You have to have a lot of money in the bank. But that is important because it gives every team the opportunity through merit to move up the pyramid. And I believe it, it encourages those teams to work hard and also gives those teams an opportunity to market themselves for sponsors and for players that, hey, we're on the pyramid system and we can move up. So that, that's the centerpiece, but there are many, many other reforms that I think amateur soccer needs to do to build an amateur soccer nation. And I'd be happy to talk yeah. about some of the, of the other ones. Uh, totally, and I would love to hear them. I've just got two very quick questions, and we'll, we'll come back to them. How has um, the promotion location continued for a while with the league, right? I had a little trouble understanding you. Sorry, the pro promotion and relegation has been in place for a while within the league system. You've had you've had clubs go up and you've had clubs go down. In right? the Cosmopolitan Soccer League, we've had ProRel yeah. uh, since almost its inception yes. in the 1920s. Okay. Uh, this is the first time we're, we're having ProRel between different leagues. All right. Okay, no, that might not that clarifies. Um, how have clubs reacted? Because promotion relegation always sounds beautiful and sexy because it provides the opportunity for growth, right? And we're all on, all on board with that. But the flip side of that is that clubs get relegated and they start a downward spiral. My club back home has a prime example of that, and I'm sure we could cite 101. How have clubs reacted to the relegation side of ProRel? Well, in the Council Pong League, I'm going to be honest, it is, it, it's really... Uh, <laughs> But either clubs get relegated because they just can't compete. And it's a lot of times the same clubs. My own club has been promoted three times to the first division before, before the, the first division was spun off into the EPSL three times in the last 10 years. And we lasted one year each. There are other clubs, some that have lasted two years or three years, but it's a lot of times the same clubs that go up and down, up and down, and they're used to it. There are other clubs that are, are, have a different model, and we can get into club culture that it's really an owner -oper operator model where the owner says, screw this, I'm going to go home. Those are rare. They do happen. Um, but there's always new clubs to take their spot. It, it, it's been so ingrained in the Cubs of Pond Soccer League that, that, that teams have always accepted it. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we're doing it where um, this is an interleague pro-rel system. So we're going to see how it works. I would think the teams in the Metropolitan Conference, because they're so used to it through their local leagues, mm. that they will probably accept it. I don't know about everyone else, you know. Yeah. Just um, to follow up then, I guess, with the, how you work in the geography of it. Because if, for argument's sake, a club in, out of Boston um, gets relegated or is, it sits down at the bottom, but there's no one in the league below prepared to come up, how does that, how is that operating? And like, are you, are you perpetually going to prepare to be shifting borders and boundaries between the lower leagues? 
Not necessarily. Um, well, again, in the EPSLR model is to have conferences, which are in a geographically based area. So if a team in Boston, in, in the new, let's say the Northeast Conference comes in last, comes in 12 and gets relegated, and the none of the feeder league teams want to go up, either the first place or second place, if first place doesn't go up, then the second place potentially goes up, then there would be no pro relegate. There would be no, they wouldn't be relegated because there's no, no team to take its spot. No one to take place. Um, yeah. um, now, as far as the geographic imbalance, I don't think that would happen because again, a team from Boston isn't going to get, because we're playing in conferences. So the last place mm -hmm. team in Boston isn't going to go to a New York league. They're going to go to uh, a Massachusetts league. Yeah. Uh, and what could happen is what we discussed in the Kazopan League, we have 12 teams in our first division. We play a 22-match schedule, 11 matches in the fall, 11 in the spring. Um, if a team, because we, the Garden State League and the Kazopan Soccer League currently feed into the Metropolitan Conference, if the team that came in last was a Kazopan League team, uh, a New York-based team, they would go back to the Kazopan League, and let's say the promoted team comes from the Garden State League, then there would be a temporary imbalance for one year in the Kazopan Soccer League First Division. Instead of 12 teams, we'd have 13 teams, and we would relegate three into the Kazopan League Second Division the following year. It's similar to the German Oberliga model from the Real Liga, where Sometimes the Oberliga in Germany is supposed to have 18 teams, but sometimes they have 19 teams. And the reason for that is because, again, several Oberliga feed into the regional leagues. So sometimes one Oberliga maybe have an additional team for one year, and then they would have to relegate three instead of two. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. We, come, we both come from a background where, where that makes sense, right? But you just got it. sometimes it needs explaining as well. Um, John, do you have any thoughts? I, I, no, you mentioned geography. I, I think I think Bill, that's one one of the things Nick and I talk a lot about. You're in a in the in the east, the northeast. You're in a very dense, especially ethnically. It sounds like you have you have a lot of clubs that have been around a long time, um, and you have a lot of population in a lot of big cities within a few hours ride. We in the Midwest, you know, not quite there, and in in the farther west, it's it's even tougher. Um, uh, you know where does where does geography and density fit into your um, maybe it's one of your points, but where does that fit into your your reform plans uh, in those areas where a close game is four or five hundred miles? Well, it's obvious that in some places you cannot do automatic relegation because there's no place to relegate to. That's true. Uh, this is part of the issues in the Gulf Coast Premier League, which spans really from the, the west, uh, the eastern part of Texas through the Florida Panhandle. And um, so it's a big geographic area. And what you can't, and also there's no real affiliate feeder league. So if a team comes in last, how are you going to relegate them when there's no league to go to? I think that's kind of what you're saying. Um, well, here's how I would solve that problem. You would have to expand the conferences to about 16 teams. So you would take in more teams into the conferences till you got to 16 teams. And maybe you'd have to have a, a different split schedule. Once you get to 16 teams, once you get beyond that, then you create your own feeder league. You create a second division and you relegate to that. And you can, whether you call it your second division or spin it off into a feeder league, you can't, you wouldn't have relegation until there are there, there is a massive place, a massive teams to, to relegate. So instead of a 12-team conference, you would expand the conference all the way to 16 teams eventually. And then once you get beyond that, then you can split it into, into your normal conference, let's say, of 10 teams. And then you have the second division conference of nine teams, and you'd relegate to that. All right. Let me, let me be um, not necessarily devil's advocate, but I think one of the things that I get stuck on all the time, I agree with I, – I, I understand your concept of, of conferences and divisions and building – the pyramid. I'm I'm all for that. I I can't wrap my head around this point in time. You know, as you said, there's things that wouldn't have worked in the 80s and 90s or 2000s, but things are starting to pop. I mean, our own club started four years ago. Um, many clubs around us have disappeared since we started. So I think one of the um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. One of the uh, pillars of strength here is that clubs are going to be around for the long term, right? Clubs have to be sustainable because when you build that pyramid with, we're going to have 10 here, we're going to have 12 here, we're going to have 10 here. We can't have six of the 10 folding next year. 
And I think I, I look at it in, in a, in a sort of a timeline. I think that the having the plans for the pyramid makes a lot of sense, but where, where do you, where do you, or how do you feel about that with so many clubs that seem to pop up and then disappear within three years? That still is an issue that we need to solve before we can have this grand amateur pyramid, right? Well, that's a different issue. Uh, I don't think the, the pyramid doesn't kill the clubs because as, as I mentioned, at least under my plan against, this is my plan, we're relegating one team out of 12 in a geographic area. So if there really is an issue of, of you have 10 teams and, and four disappear, and this is in my book, the MPSL, the National Premier Soccer League, the average lifespan of a club is two years, two years. And that's part of the problem. You cannot build an amateur soccer nation when clubs don't stick around. If there's a team in, um, you can pick a city um, in Indianapolis, let's say, or Columbus, Ohio, there's a local club there and they're developing a fan base and maybe they're getting 500 spectators a match and then they disappear after two years. Well, that was all for nothing. And then the fans get jaded. I, I, you know, I like this club. I bought a scarf, I bought a shirt, and now two to three years later, they've disappeared. So that is a problem. And some of that I try to address in my book of how to change that from where the lifespan is not two or three years, but it's sustainable. And how do you make it sustainable? Well, number one, you have to have high level leagues that are affordable. Part of the problem is you have to, that these clubs, a lot of times are owner based models where you have a person, a man or a woman where it's his or her hobby for a few years. And this was great. And now I'm going to move on and maybe I'll take up yachting or, or golfing or what have you skydiving. That's not a club. The clubs in England, the clubs in Germany, in England, in Italy, they've been around for 50, 100 years. And in, in the book, I talk about one of the Oberligas in Germany, and I mentioned when every club started. And I think out of 18 clubs, the majority had been there over 75 years, had been around over 75 years. The problem is you have a model here that is not sustainable. You have an owner model, not a club model, where you have one or two owners who foot the bills, who get tired of footing the bills because the bills are too expensive. So you have to number one, get away from that model. You have to have a model where, number one, the bills are, are relatively inexpensive. In the EPSL Metropolitan Conference, we're charging $2,100 for a 22-match season and giving out prize money. That's reasonable. The, when some of these leagues are charging $15,000 franchise fees and, and $7,500 a year, that's not sustainable. So first things first, you have to have a model that's affordable. Second of all, you have to ingrain the teams into the community. Um, and one of the ways is by incentivizing them to have reserve teams. When you have a reserve team, you have a bigger player pool, you have a bigger base, and you have more workers, more worker bees to do work. And you have to get away from the owner occupy owner, owner model to the club model. I don't know how your club set up and, and, and it's not for me to judge, but my club is a club. There is no owner of the club. The clubs are a member. It's a nonprofit corporation, and the club has fundraisers. We may have a golf outing. Um, um, we may have a golf outing, and we may raise money. We may raise a few thousand dollars through a golf outing. This is something the club does. It builds camaraderie. It also brings in money. We may have a fundraiser where we sell shirts. We do this as a club, and when you have a club, then the people want to see the club succeed. There, I just saw today one of the um, team managers. He had a baby and he got the baby a little shirt that says Hoboken FC. That's what we want to do. We need to have a club model so the club stays around where it's, where it's relatively cheap and we need to incentivize that club to create other teams. So it's not just a bunch of guys that an owner pays 18 guys to show up on Sunday, but a whole club culture. And I think that's how it is in England. So if, if it works everywhere else on the planet, why wouldn't it work here? We're not, doing, we're not necessarily doing things the right way anymore, but I, yeah, I completely agree. And we've said it before, John, is that clubs need to be community-driven, fan-run, um, and not like little hobby, not play things, not, not player-driven. Welcome back, folks. Second half of Build It with me, John, and Bill Marth. Um, you know that because you've been listening. Bill, um, before we went down the pro rail rabbit hole, 
you mentioned there were about there were about sixteen other well not other but sixteen tenants of your plan. Um, without listing them in a very boring fashion, are there any that you want to really pull out and talk talk more in depth about? Well, one of the biggest things is that right now I think U.S. adult soccer. I won't even say U.S. soccer because I don't think U.S. soccer cares at all about amateur soccer. But U.S. adult soccer, I think, is focused right now on a few clubs. They're focused on cups. If you look at their budget, and it's in there. They they give they directly support the National Amateur Cup, and they also support. They give a hundred forty thousand dollars per region, and some of those regions use that directly for cups. Uh, but only like the finals or to have their teams go into into um, national cups. And that's the problem because right now they're spending uh, 200 something thousand dollars on cups. And that benefits about 1% of the teams. I'm advocating a reorganization of the USASA budget and the regional budgets to reward clubs. I have first things first, what I think you need to do is you need to get the clubs ingrained in the community. How do you do that? I think as an example, let's say the Chicago Fire have a home match. Illinois State Soccer should invite all the local sports bars, especially soccer bars, maybe soccer shops, maybe supporters groups like a Man U or Barcelona supporters groups to a tailgate before the Chicago Fire match. You have like a, it's like a, like a job fair. Everyone gets a table. And then what you do is you invite all the clubs, all the local clubs, all women's clubs, lower level clubs, Midwest Premier Clubs, all of them. You invite them so that they can meet each other. And hopefully there'll be a synergy where a club can meet some sponsors and can meet maybe a bar that will sponsor them. That's step one. Then step two is you try to reward clubs by giving them money to help stream matches. We did that. We had, whether it's 20 people watching or 30, we streamed one of our Hoboken FC matches and we showed it live at our sponsor bar. I think it would be great if someone could see your club live at a bar. It will it'll create some community support. How do you, but streaming matches may cost $200. What USASA should do is they should subsidize some of that. They should reward certain clubs by, if you get a certain metric, you get a thousand viewers, a thousand followers on Twitter, we're going to give you a grant. We'll give you a few hundred dollar grant so you could stream two of your club, two of your, or three of your matches and maybe matching grants. And by, and by doing that, you're rewarding the clubs. Likewise, if a club gets a reserve team or builds a women's team or even gets a youth team, there should be a grant from USASA or ideally US soccer to support that so that the club can expand. The money that is spent right now on cups goes to the same clubs and some of them are in my league and they're great and we love them. They don't need the money as much as some of the lower level clubs. We need to find a way to invigorate the lower level clubs so that they can reach that level. And unfortunately, if you ask some of the soccer officials, they may know only about 10 or 12 clubs, the ones that are always in the National Cup finals or in the regional finals. They don't know the local clubs. That's who we need to reach out to to help build a soccer nation. They're the ones that are really our clubs, and a lot of them want to grow. And we need to get them to stream matches. We need to get them, find them, help them find sponsor bars and supporters groups and, and all of that. And a lot of that's in the book. So I think there needs to be a reorganization of finances. Uh, they're, they're spending $10,000 to send a team, to send one team to Europe. They're going to have the, the champion of the amateur cup or, or it might be the Strindbrescher cup is going to play the UEFA amateur champion and someone's going to pay and, and, and U.S. soccer or USASA is going to throw in $10,000 for that. That's $10,000 for one club, one club. Yeah. We have 10,000 clubs in this country. Mm-hmm. That doesn't build an amateur soccer nation that helps the club. It's nice. And if, and if we had, you know, a billion dollars in the bank, that's great. But how does that build an amateur soccer nation? Mm-hmm. How is supporting a club, to go to Chicago to play in the National Cup Finals. It's a building an amateur soccer nation. 
you build an amateur soccer nation by invigorating the lower level clubs, by helping them grow, encouraging them to get a second team, an over 30 team, a women's team, the youth teams, sponsor bars. And a lot of that's in the book. Mm-hmm. I, could, I couldn't agree I, more. I get, Go on, John. No, I, I was, you know, you talk about the USASA and the USASA is four regions and this is a big country, right? I, I don't even know what they do with yeah. Alaska and Hawaii, but to there me, <laughs> well, okay, perfect. So to me, I look at, I look at your region could be broken to, you know, region, region, uh, Midwest could be broken to five different sub-regions and do just like, because I don't think we have the boots on the ground. Again, Nick, we say that all the time, right? The the USASA and, and any other soccer governing body needs to have boots on the ground in the weeds with us at the club level to figure out where those pain points are, to help solve those pain points. Because just to your point, the clubs have to be around. It's not, we have to find ways to make the, the 10,000 clubs become 13,000 because all 10 stayed year after year after year. And I think the geography, again, I go back to that. It's so difficult to keep, to keep touch with everybody without having, whether it's reps at the state level or the whatever, where do you think those, the state associations where of course, some States are very good. Some States are not, where does the state association fall into this pyramid in, in their being a part of the solution? Ideally, they are the key. Who would ideally they are the key because they are the, the state association is the are the people who are most likely to reach out to these clubs. The problem is we have some state associations that are not functioning, and that's in the book. I mean, New Hampshire had zero registrations in 2019. This is pre-COVID, zero, not a single registration. Meanwhile, there is there is an unaffiliated league that has 85 teams in New Hampshire. So why is that league unaffiliated? Why, what is New Hampshire doing wrong that they have zero registrations, that they have not encouraged this, this league to affiliate? Kansas had five consecutive years of declining registrations and about lost 80% of their members, 80% of their player registrations decline in five years, 80%. Mississippi, zero registrations in 18 and only 105 in 19. Nevada, zero registrations in 17, in 2017, 71 in 2018 and zero in 19. New Mexico, a 50% decline in a five-year period. Rhode Island and Washington State, five consecutive years of declining registrations. That's a problem. But now, again, U.S. soccer doesn't care. U.S. soccer. They don't care because I guarantee if this was in Germany, Spain, Italy, France, and the state associations had these results, something would happen. So in the book, there are plans. There are proposals. If the state association is not functioning, there a monitor needs to be appointed. And that monitor needs to approve the budget and help the state association. And ultimately, they may need to be replaced and possibly taken over by the youth association in that state, which happened in Southern Cal for other reasons, but that's a combined state association now. Um, And so is, by the way, North Texas, a very successful one is a combined state association. So I think that's a a model that we really should look at, combined youth adult state associations, how it used to be. But the problem is some state associations are not functioning and no one's doing anything about it. But some are great. I think New York is great. I think New Jersey is great. Um, I think Mass certainly is great. And actually, Hawaii and Alaska and Hawaii have the, have the most per population. Uh, in, in the book, in my appendix, I tell you how many registrations you have per population. Alaska is one, Hawaii is two. So there's a lot of functioning state associations, but probably a third are not functioning. And U.S. soccer and USA say you need to do something about it and do something quick. Because you can't have a state association like New Hampshire that has zero registrations, and then you have an unaffiliated league with 85 teams. And if there's 20 players on a team, what's that? That's 1,700 right there. Um, you know Chris Castle, I'm sure. Or if, or yes. Even, yeah. yes. Um, we had him on a few weeks ago, and the thing that he always says that has stuck with me is that people say that U.S. soccer is broken, and his stance is that it's not broken. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to be, which is protecting those that need protecting as in, you know, the, the white men in suits and not looking after anyone else. And what you're saying 
completely echoes it, right? It's just um, once you're in a position of power. I, I would say they don't care. I, I don't say they, 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 they're they at it's it's in it's it's indifference is what I would call it. I wouldn't say that they're out to get the amateurs, but it's indifference because at this point the U.S. soccer makes their budget comes from the national team, from from TV revenue, sponsorship revenue, from merchandise sales, and from the professional game and all of that. That the we're just little pests to them. The the state associations. And that needs to change because that's not how it is in, in Europe. Okay. The state associations are the key. So how does it change in, your, in this ideal world, right? regardless of the practicalities of making it change? How would you make it change? Well, uh, <laughs> well now we're getting into a complicated legal, uh, and I don't <laughs> want to get into being a lawyer, a legal thesis. The power technically derives from the state associations. U.S. soccer has a monopoly power through the Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act, and they have that because of the amateur state associations, ultimately, and, and the youth to that, to that extent. So ultimately, we do have the power. It's the nuclear option. We could force change uh, by, by threatening a walkout. I certainly hope it doesn't come to that. Um, I think there was a positive development that someone from a state association won the vice presidency uh, at U.S. Soccer and the, the last AGM, so 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 that that's good. But part of it is the state associations themselves have to accept the consequences of failure. Missouri doesn't even have a website. I mean, this is the year twenty twenty one, and the state association doesn't even have a website. So if you're a team, if you're a player, or something in Missouri, you can't even get a hold of the state association. So it's a combination of one, the state associations have to accept that this is what's required to be a state association. And U.S. soccer needs to step up and say, it's for the good of the game. We need to invigorate the state associations. We need to get them money. But if they fail, there's consequences. We can't have it both ways. We can't just give them money to, and, and it goes down a cesspool, you know, because some of the state associations are failures, about a third of them, and they need to get monitored or possibly replaced because ideally every player should register through the state association is my idea. Everyone should register through their state association. That's the key. We want the state association to be the point of entry for every player. And frankly, that's how it is in Germany. They don't do the physical registrations, but even Bundesliga teams, the state association gets money from the professional clubs playing in that, in their domiciled area, in their regional area. So we want we need to get the state associations to have more money, but we got to make sure they work and function. And we just have to keep the pressure up, keep the pressure up. And there's going to be an election for president in four years for U.S. soccer. There was an election for vice president. There are things that can be done um, to make sure that the state associations have more power. Bill, who's just because I don't I'm ignorant to this. Who yeah. who do the state associations r report to? technically then is that well, is that usasa or is that directly to U u.s soccer well it's a very complicated thing and I, I don't want to get on too much of a tangent so i'll try to say it in two minutes this u.s soccer originally was run by the state associations and and they were combined adults and youth and there was a few national leagues that were direct affiliates in the early 80s late 70s early 80s a lot of the youth started splitting off so Eventually, U.S. soccer created three divisions of adult, youth, and professional. And you'd have three divisions that had roughly one-third of the vote, 33% of the vote. Eventually, because of the Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act, there's an athletes council that has 20% of the vote. So now the state associations and lost some of their vote. They are official members of U.S. soccer both the adult and the youth, uh, adult and youth state association, official members of U.S. soccer, they are also members of USASA. USASA is also a member of U.S. soccer. Um, it's a very complicated, screwed up system that you now have an adult council, youth council, professional council, and athletes council. Right now, the athletes have 20% of the vote. That may increase. So the, the other councils have about 26% of the vote. USASA is the only member of the adult council. So USASA, for all practical purposes, is the same as the adult council. 
uh, and the state associations are members of USASA, but they are also direct members of US soccer. Now, for practical purposes, you'd have to be one and the same if you, uh, for practical purposes, you couldn't leave USASA and, and just be a member of US soccer. Uh, Washington youth tried to do that, but it didn't work out. Clear as mud. Absolutely. Just... All right. Um, does that answer your question, John? <laughs> Yeah, I know it's a little yeah, complicated but... <laughs> legal. No, no. My, here's here's where I, I always go back to accountability. Though you said you said, and I, I don't want to belabor the point. You said if the state association isn't functioning appropriately, they need to be face, face the consequences, be held accountable. Yeah. And I don't, I still don't know who is the one who says they're not doing it right. Now we're going to take over and make it right and bring in a monitor and. Well, it's kind of like everybody could point the finger and say, well, USASA should do it. No, U.S. soccer should do it. And well, in the meantime, probably the USASA should do it just from a practical standpoint because they, they, they understand the system better. Uh, but there would be metrics. Uh, and this year we have COVID, so this, it's a little different. But there's a metric. If you, if you lose, I don't know, if you have three years of declining registrations or you, have, you lose 25% of your members or 20% of your members over two or three years, a monitor comes in and then eventually if the monitor then will kind of have a say and he or she has to approve any expenditures. Ultimately, U.S. soccer has to, would be the ultimate person who, who has to agree to this because the state associations are organizational members of U.S. soccer. I believe if USASA wanted to do this, this would happen. Uh, and USASA would be the one to appoint the monitor since they would know who the monitor is. As an example, you take a former maybe president like a Richard Groff from Delaware, maybe he would be the monitor in, in Missouri. Uh, I'm just throwing them out there. Um, there's a lot of people who, who could potentially be monitors, and that doesn't mean they work full time, but they have to be engaged. And it would be USASA who would appoint them, I would assume, since they, they would know the, the people who would best serve that capacity. Happy John? Yeah, I, I got. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Thanks, Bill. All right, Bill. Um, bluntly, are you optimistic for the next five years of US soccer? Ten US years? soccer? Well, let's let's start. Oh, with, yeah, I'm yeah. optimistic with the national team, uh, even though we didn't make the Olympics. But I am optimistic that we're going to make the World Cup. All right. Are you optimistic about amateur soccer in this country? I think so, because I think there's enough people who want to make change who are getting involved. I think the best thing that has happened is the EPSL, the Midwest Premier League, the Gulf Coast League, and, and the Mountain Premier League are in an alliance. Uh, they're in an alliance with NISA. We hope NISA continues to prosper and grow. And if that works, then for the first time, we have a partnership between a pro organization and, a, and, and an adult amateur organization and I think that is the start of, of the pyramid and I think some of the people who are entrenched you know are eventually going to give up their power and I think people are going to see the merits of these regional premier leagues and I think they will grow and so I'm optimistic I think we're, I think the Midwest Premier League the East, EPSL and other ones will grow and I think there's going to be more feeder leagues uh, I that will yeah. join and be part of the pyramid. Certainly are. So, yeah, right, yeah I, and I'm curious to, to go, you segued into it, Nick, so sorry to hijack you here, but Bill, I think you've been involved um, with, you know, us as an affiliate league and you guys, I think you guys have been having some sort of collaborative affiliate league phone calls periodically. Yes. Um, what, you know, just, I'm not involved with those. Thank, thank goodness. Um, What's what kind of collaboration is there? Good is that good conversation between those four leagues you mentioned? It's good conversation. Uh, you know, I don't want to reveal everything that's said, but it's it's basically trying to get common standards, um, where the Premier Leagues again have higher standards than the, than the local leagues. It's working together um, where the Premier Leagues would be in certain geographic areas and would not compete against each other. So that's a lot of what we're talking about. So that we're all kind of on the same page. Yeah, let's let's fill that map in because yeah. we we you've got you've got your geography and we're still figuring out ours and 
Yeah, let's let's fill that map in with affiliated There's a lot of places league. in the country where we don't have anything yet. Texas, I know, a small part of it, but Texas Texas could be its own affiliate. It's so it's so big. It, you know, it's bigger than probably most countries in Europe. Uh, California. There's a lot of places that haven't been filled in yet, where there's going to probably be other organizations that that will take those spots. Sure. So, you're optimistic for amateur soccer. Are you optimistic for Hoboken? Like, what, what, what does success for Hoboken look like in the next five years? Well, we, we want to we want to try to grow and eventually get into EPSL. Um, we're, we're in a tough area. The New York <laughs> metropolitan area is tough. There's a lot of great teams here. Mm-hmm. So we're competing against the Lansdowne boys and the Penn Cyprians and in New Jersey, Cliff Elite and Seft. So there's a lot of good teams that we're competing against for players. But I, I think we have a lot of infrastructure in place. We have a lot of, we have several club, several teams in the club. And, and I'm optimistic that, uh, we're going to keep growing. We're in third place right now in the Kazapan League first division. And hopefully, you know, we still have a, a chance to win it. If not this year, then hopefully in a year or two. Yeah, and, then, and then enough with the yo-yoing. You want to stabilize at the top level. We want to stabilize. Yeah. We want to get to the EPSL and stay there. And um, plus we have a lot of plans. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we want to try to venture start youth affiliations. We want to go on to do additional trips and yeah. do a lot of exciting of things like that. Just, I, I don't want to spend too much time on Hoboken because I think there's a bigger conversation, but um, what's an average game day attendance for you guys? Give or take. Probably like 25 to 30. Okay. I mean, okay. we don't get many, we don't get many spectators. I mean, if we got, uh, it's hard to tell because there's, it's in a park and there's people walking. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're behind a fence, but I mean, it's, it's, unfortunately it's mostly people's, um, significant others, friends, mm-hmm. roommates, parents. Um, so we don't, we're just a local little club. Yeah. Uh, I think we did have a couple hundred viewers when we streamed the last match. I, I think we had four to 500 viewers who watched the last match that was streamed. So that, that was pretty exciting. All right, cool. And then, okay, and then one last thing on attendances then. Um, just a name that I picked up on, Lansdowne Boys, I know their history. What are they approximately bringing in, do you think, on a attendance-wise? I'm just they curious. They get if... over 100. Uh, right. I know they unfortunately, I was at the first EPSL kickoff match they played at Nyack, and unfortunately, COVID rules weren't in effect too, so that's another yeah. thing. <laughs> Chaos, uh, right? That uh, there was, they would have probably had a few hundred. They have they have about twenty nine youth programs, uh, youth teams that are running in Yonkers, and I think they would have had a couple hundred spectators for the opening day, um, but unfortunately with with the COVID rules, this was in October of yeah, the, and they're still somewhat in effect, they're still social distancing, but I think they can get over a hundred. Um, okay, all right, um, maybe more. If we haven't, if we have energized anyone listening to this who hasn't, who, anyway, if we have energized anyone listening to this, what's the first thing that you would ask a layman to do someone who isn't you know on a on a committee who isn't part of u.s soccer on any level whatsoever at the moment what can we do what can they do to make a change well i would say one join a club and get involved that's the first thing um there's always stuff to do in in the club and and that's a positive development because a lot of these people they are on social media and they're just not all of them, but there's some people just rant and say things um, and who frankly have never been on the ground level. They've never been a general manager or a coach. They've never had to deal with parks departments and getting fields and, and registering players and getting people's IDs and, and, and coordinating with other teams about cup yeah. matches. It's, it's easy, so Bill. Get it's involved. easy. That sort of thing. That's, it's easy. <laughs> That's the easy part, yeah. yeah. I, I, I would say get involved with a local club because there's always stuff to do, whether it's social media, whether it's sponsorship, whether it's something like that. Get involved with a local club so that you really understand what needs to be done and or get involved with the league. We have people in our league, whether it's an arbiter, whether it's a tre- uh, treasurer, whether it's uh, social media people who are not directly involved with clubs. Um, and there's always positions available in a league. So I would say get involved with your league, get involved with a club, do that. And then, yes, you can lobby and make a change on the internet. But the problem is, if you're just ranting and raving, 
on the internet and you have no background, you're not going to be taken seriously. And I think, I hope I'm taken seriously. I hope I grew up with soccer. I, I think in the book, I give you real facts. I, I tell you how it is in other countries. And uh, you may not agree with everything, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I'm in there, but I'm giving you cognizant facts and basing them up. Basing the facts are based on stuff. So I would encourage people to get involved on the ground level, do it for a little while so you really understand what it's about and then help promote your club. Go to matches. Mm -hmm. Just go to matches. Go watch your local team play. Buy a scarf. God, yes. Every little helps. Yeah. You just, you become a walking billboard in your town, basically. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. All right, Bill. Um, is there a question we should have asked or something you want to get off your chest that we haven't given the opportunity to? No, not really. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in here. Uh, and I guess both of you are where? From England? Or where are you from? Uh, Scotland, where are you from? I'm, fr- I'm from Liverpool originally. John's a native. Okay. So, I mean, if you've been in, if you've been in England, you know how, not, obviously, not just Liverpool, <laughs> see, but like the local clubs, I'm sure you know. That's what yes. we're trying to do. And there, there's a lot of things that need to be done. We'd like to get some uh, work with park depart- parks departments to get better fields where we have some changing rooms and alike. Um, and there's so much that can be done. Um, in the book, I have the, the Sister Cities program where I think it would be great if U.S. adult soccer worked with foreign countries not to play one match, but to match up teams so that they, it's kind of like a, a pen, you know, used to have like a, you know, your pen pal from overseas mm-hmm. or like a sister cities program yeah. where eventually we can get clubs like the club from England, bring them over here, have them play two or three matches in Illinois. And then maybe you team your club or maybe a, a combined club, you and another club, if you can't do it all by yourself, go over there and travel. I think that will, I think that will under, that, that will help people in America understand what it's like overseas and we'll, and we'll get some excitement going. So that's in the book. Um, there, there are, I believe, strongly in youth synergy. I think that's something we really need to work on in the country on a state association level and on a club level. I think having a successful youth organization within your club will help. It'll help with fields. It'll help with sponsors. Mm-hmm. It'll help with more boots on the ground. So that's something I would, I think we need to advocate. And then... I, I really want to iterate. I hope that everyone in U.S. soccer or U.S. adult soccer gets behind what we're trying to do with, with the Premier League systems to have higher standards through the states um, where the first time we're not the UPSL or NPSL where, where there's some outside group, but we are really trying to work with the state associations to build a high-level product. And I hope, I'd like to reiterate, I'd hope that all the, the regional um, directors and everyone in the USASA board gets behind this movement. And I think there's still some doubters out there. They want to see it happen. Uh, this We're only in its infancy, but hopefully in the next, that's why I'm optimistic, because I, I, I'm very confident it's going to work. I think within the next five years, everyone's going to jump on board because they're going to see that this is such a great model. It's an affordable way to get clubs playing at a high level. It may make sense to us, for sure. John, anything to add? Well, I, Bill, I've, uh, I, I appreciate the time. I I, uh, I always learn from people that have been in a lot longer than I have. And despite growing up in the United States and playing soccer my whole life and being around the game, all of the, all of the boardroom politics is still fairly new to me. And, and even serving, you know, on the Midwest Premier League board, there's a lot that we, that we have to figure out as we go because, you know, things move fast. So it, it's uh, been a pleasure chatting with you and I look forward to reading the book as I, as admittedly we have not yet <laughs> but uh i need to find out what these 16 points are and uh do our part in our little corner of the of the country for sure for sure great and uh like i i'd love to get out there uh hopefully uh and see some some uh midwest premier league matches always welcome bill where can where can people get hold of your book first and foremost uh it's on amazon amazon uh amazon, and it's cool. amazon Kindle, yep. building an amateur soccer nation Lovely. and and how are we spelling your surname for those who want to Google it? Uh, M-A-R-T-H. Fantastic stuff. And where can people get hold of you online if they have questions? Uh, well, Twitter, I, I have I have a Twitter account, which uh, I would use the one that I have associated 
with with the book, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, it's it's building an amateur soccer. It's at, at, at amateur soccer US. Okay. Capital A, capital S, US. Um, at amateur soccer US, you can direct message me. Um, be happy to you know. I'm very easy to find. I mean, I'm, <laughs> my numbers are everywhere with Pobo sure. and, and the league and things. So that's how we hunted um, you down. All right, Bill. Um, thank you very much for your time. Again, apologies for messing you around in the past. Um, this has been hugely beneficial, I think, and informative. And I expect we would love to hook up with you again in a year or so and see how things have progressed, if that's all right. That'd be awesome. Fantastic. Best of luck with the league. Cool. Best of luck with my boat. And best of luck with everything. Great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay. Now the time has come for leaving. Shall return. We were so glad we could make it, but so sad we gotta run. Well, it might be a long time till we raise another glass. You can rest assured that next time we'll have ourselves a laugh.